Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so let's, let's, let's review like we do every week and go back to, we're in 1 Corinthians, so that's where we are tonight. And back in chapter 1, Paul is addressing them as saints, as Christians, as those who have been called, as those who have been set apart. He's, he's, he's talking to Christians. Remember, these are Christians, but they're Christians behaving badly, okay? He's talking to Christians. And the main issue he was talking about, let's go back up to chapter 1, verse 10. This is where Paul starts this whole argument that goes all the way to the end of chapter 4. So chapter 1, verse 10, all the way to where we're going to go today is one long argument that Paul is basically making. And in verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment for it has been reported to me by chloe's people that there's quarreling among you my brothers so what's the issue in the church they're fighting they're quarreling they they've picked these super leaders right there's those the group that says we like paul and there's the group that says we like apollos and the group says we like peter and then there's the real spiritual ones that say we like jesus as if you know they're trying to be real spiritual and paul says okay let's back up let's talk about the cross It all centers on the cross. The cross is foolish. The cross is offensive. The cross humbles us. Let's go back to the cross. And so all the rest of chapter 1 into chapter 2 is all about the cross and how we understand that through the power of the Holy Spirit and how it's a stumbling block. And then in chapter 3, what we looked at last week, he talks about how we build a church or how God builds a church, that God is the one that causes the growth. God is the one that causes the increase. The only foundation for a church is Jesus. And he says, be careful how the leaders build on the foundation of the church. And we talked about all the ways that you can build faulty on the church with wood, hay, and straw as opposed to um, precious stones, gold, and silver. And then Paul basically says, you guys are the church. You're the temple. You're God's dwelling place. You need to get along. Okay? Now, in chapter 4... Paul is going to specifically address the issue of Christian leadership. Now, let me just preface this tonight by saying what I'm going to teach tonight is humbling because it's talking about me, and it's humbling because it talks about how you are supposed to treat me. So Don's like, do you really want to teach this tonight? Why don't you just skip over it? And I said, well, I've done all this work. So anyway, it's, <laughs> it's about generally Christian leaders in the church, what are the qualifications of Christian leaders? How are Christian leaders supposed to act? And then how does the church get along respecting and honoring? So, so it's kind of awkward to talk about that, but that's what we're going to talk about tonight because we're going verse by verse through 1 Corinthians and we don't want to skip over a whole chapter. Okay, so there's three main sections of chapter 4. And so the first section, and we'll take these by sections, is chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. So let's, this is the Christian leader's trust. So let's read chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ 
and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, that each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you be, be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? We're going to see two things about Christian leaders from verses 1 through 2. And this is Paul's main point, these two things. Number one, Christian leaders are servants of Christ. Servants. And number two, they are to be faithful stewards of the gospel. Paul is saying here, don't put me up on a pedestal. Don't make me out to be this super rock star pastor. Don't do that to Apollos. Don't do it to Peter. I'm not a power-hungry pastor. What I am is simply a servant. I'm coming to serve Christ and to serve you. And so the first thing about a Christian leaders is ultimately they are to serve the Lord and serve the church, to be servants. And then secondly, he says... You're also to be, he says there, stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, the mysteries of God he's talking about is what we've been looking at all through the past three chapters, the gospel, the cross, the, the blessings of the gospel. And so basically what he's saying is a, a pastor, a leader, a Christian leader has to be a, a servant and then a steward of the gospel. And so we have to ask the question, what's a steward or a stewardess? Or a flight attendant. <laughs> Back in that day, a steward in that Greek culture was a household manager. He would supervise the property, the field, the vineyards, the finances, the food, and, and the other servants on behalf of the master. So in other words, what a steward is, is that God has given you a responsibility and you are to take care of that responsibility by serving him faithfully. So what is the responsibility here that Paul says leaders have been given? They're to be stewards of what? The mysteries of the gospel. Sound theology, sound doctrine, be able to teach, to be entrusted. And also think about this. Elders and pastors and leaders have been entrusted not only with the gospel, but they've also been entrusted with people. To not take advantage of people, to not lord over people, to not be power-hungry over people, but to serve the church. Now, Titus chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, Paul says this about an overseer, about a pastor, about an elder. An overseer as God's steward. He uses that terminology again. As God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke, to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay? So a servant and a steward. 
A leader is to serve the church, serve Christ, and to be a good steward to take care of the trust that's been given him. Now, let's turn over to 2 Corinthians for just a minute. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. Paul is going to say again about his ministry what he did not try to do as a leader, as a pastor, as a, as a church planner, as a missionary, however, Christian leader. Here's what he says in verse 17. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. What do you think he means there by a peddler of God's word? We're not a peddler of God's word, but we, we act in sincerity. What do you think he means by a peddler? What's a peddler? A what? Okay. Okay, like a cheap salesman. Okay, like a vacuum. So hopefully, there's no vacuum salesman here that go door to door and they try to. So Paul's basically saying, "What? I'm not like this sleazy salesman that's trying to use these underhanded methods to try to build a church. But I've come to you in sincerity. I've come to you in honesty. I'm not trying to be slick and trying to pull wool over your eyes." I'm trying to accurately handle this word and not peddle it like so many. Uh, look at chapter 4 real quick of 2 Corinthians. Just look over two, two, two uh, chapters. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, he says this, Therefore, having the ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we've renounced disgraceful, disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He's basically saying the same thing. We're not practicing cunning. We're not trying to deceive. We're not trying to be slippery and slick. We're not trying to misuse the word of God. We've come as servants. We've come as good stewards to the best of our ability and the gospel to try to present to you the truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 says this about leaders. Pastors, Christian leaders, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, let's just stop and talk about those two characteristics of a Christian leader, a servant and a steward of God's word. How do you not see those like out in the world, like Let's not pick on me, but let's just talk, talk about out in the world. Like, do you see pastors or do you see televangelists or do you see examples out there of maybe um, those that don't rightly handle the word of God and try to trick people and try to pull the wool over people's eyes? I think your televangelists and some of your megachurch preachers you don't get too big and get the power, then they do become peddlers. Okay. You know, when they start preaching the gospel so that it appeases the crowd, appeases the masses to keep people coming sure. in, then they're no longer just preaching the pure gospel. Yeah. I was going to bring a quote from John MacArthur, and I forgot it. I have in my notes, John MacArthur quote on page 98, and I forgot to bring the book. But he gives a quote in this book about how he heard a very well-known preacher, and he didn't give who it was, so I wanted to make sure. I didn't know who it was. But a very well-known preacher that says, you know, I don't really do sermon prep anymore, and I really don't deal with hard issues in the Bible, and I really don't talk about a lot of sin issues. I just kind of go with the flow, and whatever I'm kind of dealing with that week, I'm going to deal with. So, like, if I have a heavy temper, I'm going to probably preach on 
He's like, you'll know what I'm dealing with based upon what I preach. So if I preach on adultery, I'm probably dealing with it. If I preach on this, he's like, and so he basically says, I'm not really, you know, I'm not going to put the time and effort into really dealing with the text because really I'm here just to kind of tickle your ears. That's kind of the the quote. I don't know who the well-known pastor was that said that, um, but it's just interesting that that's exactly the opposite of what Paul's saying here. Uh, If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, you know, Paul says, what does he say there? In verse 2, it is required, not, it's a suggestion, it would be helpful, it would be good. What does he say? It is required of stewards that they be found what? Trustworthy. Trustworthy as servants and trustworthy with the word of God. Now, let's just look at the qualifications real quick of a Christian leader. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. If you ever wanted to know what the qualifications were of a Christian leader, a pastor, an elder, even deacons are in there as well. We'll just lump everything together. A Christian leader, 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 7, gives the qualifications. Now, before we read this list, I want you to notice that Paul is not going to say anything here that really shouldn't be true of all Christians. Should all, when I read this list, these should be true of all Christians. It's not just like the pastors have to do this. These are things that all Christians probably need to do, okay, except for two, and we'll talk about what those are. So let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, again, that's like an elder, an overseer, a pastor, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, Able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Now, this is re- list is really what all Christians should display in some form or fashion. But there's two things here that Paul says really stick out for a pastor. Number one, an elder or a pastor cannot be a recent convert. What does it mean, a recent convert? If somebody becomes a Christian tomorrow, do we make him a pastor in two weeks? Why? What's, what does Paul say there? He may be what? Puffed up with conceit. Why do you think a new convert would want to become a pastor? What would be their motivation? It's false motivation. You don't do it for the money. You don't do it for the fame. You don't do it for anything except for to serve Christ. But it could be that some young guy says, man, that would be so cool to be a pastor because I could stand up and talk to people and tell people what to do and people would love me and I can, I can be in the limelight and I can have this huge church. And he could fall prey to the pride of of wanting to go into the ministry early. And so Paul says he can't be a recent convert. Now, I don't know how recent that is. He doesn't give a timetable like you have to be a Christian five years before you can become a pastor. I I don't think there's a timetable there. I just think he's saying be careful with brand new Christians. You don't want to make a brand new. Would you want a brand new Christian as your pastor? Okay. Second thing Paul says is he must be able to teach. 
That's a qualification that's not given to deacons, if you look down on the list, and it's not given to all Christians. It's given specifically to elders. They have to be able to teach or preach. They have to be able to rightly handle the Word of God. So the real issue for leaders is this. If you look at these passages all together, Paul says, number one, character issues. Character issues. Humble servanthood and solid theology and the ability to teach. Okay? There's nothing said there about what? Is there anything there on that list that talks about intelligence? Decisiveness? Wealth, power, or drive? Does it say anything about PowerPoint ability? Or innovative entrepreneurial skills? It's interesting. If you go, I think I've told you this, if you go look at pastor... Like if you go to these websites where they advertise positions for pastors or these churches are like looking for pastors, it's interesting what they put down. A lot of them say this, we want an entrepreneurial hip pastor that is an effective communicator that's efficient in PowerPoint and can cast vision and can um, highly motivate a staff. Does that sound like a pastor or a CEO of a company? Anything about prayer life, character, the ability to teach and preach. Um, it's interesting what they, what they value. And if we've looked at second or 1 Corinthians enough, what, what do you think Paul would say to that? That's the wisdom of the, the world, not the wisdom of God. Now let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So stewards and servants, Paul's saying, this is me. Don't put me on a pedestal. Don't worship me. Don't worship Apollos. Don't make us more than who we are. We are simply servants, and we've got to be faithful. But then in verse 3, look what Paul says. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Let's talk about this. This is kind of a little bit confusing. In verse 3, Paul is not saying there is no room for evaluation of leaders or even for self-evaluation. What he's saying here is that leaders constantly make it their goal to please, not to please ourselves, not to stroke our egos, and not serving those whom we've been given as the flock. That doesn't sound, that, that sentence doesn't make sense. You guys know what I mean, right? <laughs> Basically what he's saying here is that He's saying that the, the word judge there, when he says, I do not even judge myself or you shouldn't judge me, it's really the Greek word for investigate or evaluate. And what Paul's saying in verse 4 really is there's really only one opinion that counts. At the end of the day, there's only one opinion that counts, and it's the Lord who judges him. So what I think Paul's saying here is that I'm not trying to live for your approval I'm living for God's approval because I'm never going to match up to your expectations. As a leader, I'm never going to be everything you want me to be. As a matter of fact, Paul would say this, if you stick me and Apollos together in a room, he's the better preacher. Apollos was the more polished preacher. He was the more charismatic preacher. He was the more dynamic preacher. People probably like to listen to Apollos more than they like to listen to Paul. Paul was kind of short and fat and bald, and he was kind of rough around the edges. 
And so Paul would say, I'm not trying to win the approval of men. What I really care about is God's approval on me. And what he says here is that he's not aware of anything against himself. And then in verse 5, he says, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his condemnation from God. Paul basically saying here is that the motive of a leader, the motive of a pastor, should be to please God in everything. So let's just move over to, to 1 Corinthians 10.31. This should probably be a verse that you have underlined in your Bible. If not, underline it. I give you permission to write in your Bible. I don't know how you underline an electronic Bible, but you highlight it or bookmark it. 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all what? To the glory of God. Do everything for the glory of God. And so in verses 5 through 7 here, what Paul is saying is this. Those who follow Christian leaders must recognize that leaders are called to please the Lord Christ and therefore must not stand in judgment over them. Now, before, before I go any further, you may be saying, now, wait a minute. Does that mean that we should never evaluate pastors? We should never correct pastors? We should never say anything about pastors? No, that's not what he's saying. This doesn't mean that elders and pastors are immune to a correction or to be addressed when they lack leadership, but it means that there is a way to do it. Is any pastor above correction? Is any pastor infallible? Are they superheroes that should never be confronted with sin or, or issues? No. But there's a way to do it. Let's look at 1 Timothy 5, 19-20. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God in Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. So Paul says don't be partial. Don't prejudge. Have two or three witnesses. Don't admit a, um, a, a, an accusation against an elder or a pastor. Now Paul here is talking about judgments. He says don't judge before the time. What do you think is the most popular passage of Scripture in the Bible that the world knows, more so than John 3.16? Judge, judge not lest you be judged, okay? Now, so let's ask the question. Is Paul just making a blanket statement here and saying we should never make judgments? Don't judge me because only God judges me. Don't evaluate me. Is that, can, that, can that be what he's saying with the, the balance of the rest of Scripture? No. Let's, let's look at what Jesus actually says in, Ma in Matthew 7. Because people actually quote the very first verse, but they don't follow Jesus' train of thought to see what Jesus is really saying about judging. Okay, he says, Judge not that you be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. 
Did you catch it? There's room at the end there to take the speck out of your brother's eye. But you first have got to take the log out of your own. So Jesus isn't saying don't make judgments. He's saying if you're going to make a judgment, if you're going to make an accusation, if you're going to confront, if you're going to rebuke someone, you better make sure that you've dealt with sin first and you've dealt with these issues and you're not coming as a hypocrite. But Jesus isn't saying you shouldn't make any judgments. He's just saying make sure that you are right with the Lord before you go in guns blazing trying to, 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 to confront somebody. You've got to make judgments on people's character, on people's leadership. What Paul is saying here, I think, is let's not make unfair judgments. Let's not gossip. Let's not do things in an inappropriate manner. Because here's what probably was happening in Corinth. If we know anything about the context of what we've looked at the past three chapters, what was probably happening, and we probably have ample evidence in the Scripture is that the Corinthians were writing off certain Christian leaders because they were blindly following their preferred superhero rock star pastor. Okay? And this is what probably happened. This is just conjecture. They were secretly saying things behind the pastor's back like, I really don't like his preaching. I just don't like his preaching. He's, he's, just, he's kind of hard. He's kind of boring, whatever. I don't like his leadership style. He never calls me when I need him. He doesn't really care about me because he's never visited me in the hospital. Well, you never told him, but he's supposed to be a mind reader, so obviously he didn't need your mind. He's kind of unapproachable. Now, here's the issue. Those things may be true of Christian leaders, and they do need to be addressed by the congregation. But there's a way to do it that does not lead to gossip or unfair judgments. So if you have a problem, let's say with me or one of the elders or any Christian leader, should you gossip and go to people behind their backs and say, I can't believe what so-and-so did and get a little group of people to sympathize with you to take up your grievance and then you start... What's the biblical way to deal with conflict if you have an issue with somebody? Go directly to them. Most Christians don't do that. Because they're afraid to. There are a lot of Christians who are afraid to go directly and confront another person. Okay? Um, a lot of times there's some unfair characterizations. Listen to what um, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13 says. Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves to respect, honor, and esteem those that are your leaders. And then in 1 Timothy 5, 17, he says, Let the elders who rule well be worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the labor deserves its wages. So, here's what we don't know in order to make a fair judgment on leaders or any Christians for that matter. Here's what you don't know. Do you know the end of the story? Is there room for repentance and change? Do you automatically write off a person because you think, it's no good, they're never going to change, I've addressed this a million times, and it's just part of their nature, they're never going to change. You don't know the end of the story. God may get a hold of their heart and may change them, 
and there may be repentance. And number two, the one thing you don't know is you don't know the inner motives of the people that you're judging. Only God can do that. You can't see into a person's heart. So you need to be careful about unfair treatment of leaders, gossip, and complaining over issues without appropriately handling them. Let me just stop and address the issue of I have an open door policy. And so if you have any complaints or any issues, you can call me, you can email me, you can text me, and I will, I will, I will, I know pastors that will refuse to meet with people. I know pastors. If there's problem people in the church, that pastor will not even meet with them. I, I, my policy is I will meet with anybody in the church because I feel like everybody has dignity to meet with you first to find out what your issue is and have an open door policy. I may not meet with you one-on-one. I may like have somebody in there with me, but I'm not going to not meet with you because I think that's prejudging. I think that as a pastor, you should be willing to meet with anybody in the church that has any problem at any time, within reason. Like if it's 2 o'clock in the morning, it may be a little bit <laughs> unreasonable. Um, some of you have come in and met with me, and we've talked about stuff, and have I ever bitten anybody's head off? in this room I don't think so have I ever been in this room maybe outside this room <laughs> so I just want to just and again it's kind of vulnerable and I said as, I, as I'm teaching this because it's talking about Christian leaders but one of the things that we have to understand is that there's biblical evidence to say that it does not mean that elders or Christian leaders are never beyond correction okay we have some examples of this Barnabas and Peter, if you remember back in Galatians 2, Paul got in Peter's face because he wasn't walking in line with the gospel. Paul kind of got mad at John Mark, and he was less than patient with John Mark, and, and, and probably Paul was acting incorrectly. And then Apollos, he needed some instruction in, in, to correct some gaps in his theology. And so Priscilla and Aquila pulled him aside and said, you know, let, let me straighten you out. So we have examples in Acts and Galatians of Christian leaders who needed to be corrected, okay? So I think the overall thrust of what Paul is saying here, he's, he's focusing on the condemning the, on the unfair kind of judging. It simply writes a Christian leader off because he's not in your camp or he doesn't fit your paradigm or your profile of a pastor and you unfairly compare him to someone else that you really like. Look at verse 6. What does Paul say? I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor one against the other. Paul's doing something very good here in verse 6. He's taking personal accountability. He's saying, I've applied these things to myself. I've applied these to Paulos. I don't want you to go beyond what's written. I don't want you to go into legalism. I don't want you to be puffed up into pride. I don't want you just to blindly follow us. I've tried hard. I, and Apollos, we've, we've both really tried to be accountable and to try to live according to what I'm preaching here in 1 Corinthians. And these leaders were given as gifts. Paul says in verse 7, um, what do you, or for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul's saying, if a Christian leader has come and given you good teaching and they've ministered to you and they've helped you, consider that a blessing. 
what you've gotten in the church, the ministry you've received is because God has given it to you. What have you received? That What do you have that you did not receive? God has been gracious in giving you Christian leaders, even if you don't like them all the time. They're a blessing to you. Okay, so here's the bottom line. Verses 1 through 7. The bottom line of this first section is that God has given leaders to the church to serve and be faithful stewards, and the church should accept love and support these leaders as gifts and not create divisions over personalities, personal taste, and to gossip and make unfair judgments. So let's stop there and take a deep breath and see if you guys have any questions, comments, or snide remarks. Clear? All right. Well, let's move on to the second section. Christian leaders live life in light of the cross. So let's look at 8 through 13. This is the next section that Paul addresses. So let's read this. Now, I just want to, you'll notice his tone is different. He's starting to get a little sarcastic here, okay? So Paul turns into sarcastic mode. If you ever heard Paul sarcastic, go back and read Galatians, the beginning of it. He's pretty sarcastic. So I'll try to read it sarcastically like Paul may have been writing. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as the last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. You're held in honor, but we are in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst, we're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When we're reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now, what in the world is Paul saying here? Let's try to explore this. Paul now shifts his tone and has a bit of biting sarcasm as he chides the church for their continued immaturity and how they are treating leaders. We kind of understand what he's talking about in verses 8 through 10. What he's kind of saying here is that there was this sense of what I call triumphalism in the Corinthians. We've arrived. We're all that. And, you know, because we've arrived and we're all that and God is king... We should really live like princes and princesses right now instead of waiting for the future new heaven, new earth where all the blessings of Christ would finally be realized. It was this whole idea of saying, we're God's kids and we deserve everything right here and now because we've arrived. We're super spiritual. We're kings. We're awesome. We can name it and claim it. We can blab it and grab it. We can get whatever we want because, after all, God's king and we're kings too. This is very similar to the word faith movement you see on TV sometimes that claims that Christians should never suffer, be sick, be in poverty, and that we should demand all of God's blessings in the here and now because, after all, we're children of the King and He would not allow His children to live as paupers. So we just need to name it and claim it and use our words to bring about the blessings. I was listening to Artaxerdia preach the other day, and he was talking about how he went to this church of this famous preacher because everybody was going there. It's like a long time ago. And the pastor was praying, and Art had his head bowed. 
And the pastor said this in his prayer, Lord, I command you to bless me. And Art said, I raised my eyes and looked to see if he was still standing because <laughs> I thought maybe he would be. But he said, the guy said, I command you, God, to bless me. And it's kind of the attitude here that Paul's kind of, Paul's kind of digging into the Corinthians saying, you guys think you're all that. You think you deserve all this. You, you've arrived. You're kings. You've got everything you need. You guys are powerful. You're prestigious. You guys are just, you're awesome. He's kind of playing this game with them. And then in verse 9, Paul's going to take imagery from this triumphal procession that the Roman legions would do when they returned from war. Verse 9, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to the angels, and to men. Now, let me just talk to you about how this procession would happen. When a general would come back from war, they would bring their spoils of war. They would bring their slaves and their captives. And at the first, they would come in in this big processional, and at the front of the processional would be the general and all the senior officials. And then next would be the junior officials, and then the slaves would come last, and they would really come in rank about who was the lowest. And the slaves would come in in shackles, and they would be dragged into the gladiator court or the gladiator arena to either fight to the death as gladiators or to be attacked by animals. And the worst slaves, the worst criminals were at the back, eating the dust of everybody in front of them. And Paul's saying that's who we are. We as apostles, in the eyes of the world, these leaders, we're the last of the last. The last of the last. We're eating the dust of everyone. And notice what he says here. What does he say? We're like the scum of the earth. The powerful and the prestigious and the popular, the apostles are like garbage. They're in, this, they are in the last of this lineup where they are the lowest of slaves eating everyone else's dust. And look at what Paul says. We're full, verse 10, we're fools for Christ's sake. We're in disrepute. We hunger, we thirst, we're poorly dressed, we're homeless. We work with our own hands. We're persecuted, we're slandered. As a matter of fact, the world looks at us as the scum of the scum. The world looks at us as garbage. We are treated like scum. That's how the world views us. Now let me just ask you a question. He's talking about apostles here, Christian leaders, being treated that way. But let's just make it broader. Do you really think that the world views Christians that way? That we're the scum of the earth? Yes, Dick. Probably not, but should be. Okay. <laughs> Jesus said, recorded in the 10th chapter of Matthew, verse 24, a student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? Yeah. Yes. Let me show you guys a scary passage of Scripture. This just came off the top of my head, so this is not in your notes. Turn to Revelation. I don't know if you've ever noticed that this is in the Bible, but it is. 
In Revelation chapter 11, and I'm not going to get into the whole interpretation of this. I will just tell you that I believe Revelation chapter 11 is talking about the church. And it's not during a seven-year tribulation. I believe it's during any time within history. But there's something that's going to happen towards the very end of time. There's going to be the church. Satan's going to cause the church to go underground. And the world's going to think the church is dead. And look at Revelation chapter 11. All over the world. And look at verse 10. This is a minor point, so I don't want to spend a lot of time. Verse 10. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because the two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Regardless of how you interpret that, the world's throwing a party over the death of God's people. Can you just picture that? Can you picture the world throwing a party right now if all the Christians were just gone? Yes. Yeah, the church. I'm not going to get into the definition. We don't have time to do that, but my interpretation is that's the church, the two prophets. Yes. You can have a different interpretation. It's a side note. Let's move on. The point is the world wants to have a party over whether they're literal two prophets or whether it's the church, you've got the whole world wanting to celebrate because God's people are dead. It shows how the world looks at us. Yes. All right, 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus may at some point in time possibly be persecuted. Is that what it says? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Luke 6, 28 through 27 says, But I say to you who here love your enemies and do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Jesus himself, Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And then Paul says in Philippians 3, 10, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and I want to share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. So what Paul is saying here, let's go back to 2 Corinthians. I'm sorry to take that revelation diversion. That probably caused more confusion. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, what Paul is saying here is that as a pastor, as an apostle, as a Christian leader, as a servant of Christ, he was willing to go through that treatment because he loved Jesus and he loved the church. And it wasn't about power. It wasn't about politics. It wasn't about prestige or popularity. He was willing to do that, to be faithful to the gospel and to love the people. So there's three things that we learn from this section, three lessons. Number one, we all, regardless of whether you're a Christian leader or not, we all follow a crucified Christ. And as such, we will always have to take up our cross daily and die to self. Whether you suffer these types of things like the scum of the earth and and being buffeted and homeless, whether that's physically ever going to happen to you, the life of a Christian is to take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. We follow a crucified Savior. But Paul, I think, is making this point. Leaders in the church may suffer more than most because they are on the front lines of sin and lustiness. I don't think that's what I typed. That's what I did type. What's lustiness? 
They're on the front line. I think I went ministry. I don't know why I put lustiness. <laughs> well, maybe they are on the front line of lustiness. Leaders. All right, so let's just stop and talk about this because this <laughs> let's talk about lustiness. Um, leaders in the church. Do you guys? All right. What? Yeah, this is a personal thing. I don't know why I got lust. And this is a spell checker thing. Le- all right, so leaders, do you guys, this is a statement here, and you can agree or disagree. Um, do you think that Christian leaders may, not always, but may possibly, general rule of thumb, suffer more than the average Christian? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. Why? Because they're the leader? Okay. Okay. Visibility. Okay. So what type of sufferings does a Christian leader go through that other, other Christians don't? And maybe you can't answer that because you've never been in that position. And I don't want to sit here and tell you what types of sufferings I go through, but Deb. Well, let me give you guys a life of a pastor. I'm not saying it's suffering, but I'm just telling you, most average Christians, like, I'll just tell you what my day's like tomorrow. Okay, I'm going at 7 o'clock. I'm not doing this to, like, give you a martyr complex. I'm telling you about this is what a normal pastor's week is. I'm going at 7 o'clock tomorrow to the hospital because a person has to get there at 6.30 and go into surgery to go pray with a family before this person goes into knee surgery. And then I'm coming back to church at 9 to meet with a family whose two-year-old child got killed in a car wreck and wants me to do their funeral. And then um, I'm meeting later on in the evening. So, I mean, my day tomorrow is dealing with a lot of that stuff. And how many of you ever get calls at midnight saying, come pray with us because somebody's dying? Most normal Christians. And I'm not saying that's suffering. I'm just saying that a lot of times the pressures on a pastor or a leader are higher than most Christians because there's a demand on... We need you. And that's important because the pastor needs to be there. Um, and, and Paul here is saying, you know, as a leader, I'm prepared to suffer. I've applied these things to myself. Apollos, we probably, Paulus and I have talked about it. We're ready to suffer. I'm training Timothy to be the pastor, I'm training him to suffer. I would tell any pastor, if you're going into the ministry, like if the young kid comes up to me and says, hey, I want to be a pastor, I would say, um, Are you sure you really want to be a pastor? Because what you're signing up for is for suffering. You're signing up for heavy burdens. And you're signing up for a lot of sleepless nights thinking about the church. And you're also signing up to be a frontline attack from Satan. You ready to sign up for that? And if they say yes, then it's got to be God's call in their life. Because you don't just go into it because you feel like you want to do it. Um, when I was going, my dad was a pastor, and when I felt called to ministry, it was almost like my dad talked me out of it because he's like, "You need to know what you're signing up for. If you can do anything else, don't be a pastor, because if you're not called to it, you will be miserable, and, and it, it just won't be a good thing." Brent, go ahead. Although I totally agree with you, we should be suffering more as just the lay lay people. We should be more on the front lines. Sure. And so we should be more in the suffering. Like you this. should be, but in reality. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Dick, were you going to say something? I didn't know if you. Okay. 
You can say something. I didn't want to put you on the spot. I can understand if you stand for Christ in the workplace, you know, you're going to sometimes not get promoted uh, because sometimes your employer may ask you to do something that's less than honest and you may refuse to do so. Those are the kind of things that I think Brent's talking about. Sure. Where you may, as a Christian, be called to suffer sure. uh, as a layperson. I don't like the word layperson anyway. I sure. don't like the word clergy sure. because we are all servants of Christ. Sure. And if we serve him well, we will suffer. Yeah, good word. Well, and that's where the third thing comes on here. <laughs> And the third thing is all Christians are called to this vision of life and discipleship. It means that are we living, are we all living for the approval of Christ or are we living for the approval of men to earn popularity, prestige, and power? All right, let's, any questions on that before we move on to the third section? No, I, but I agree with you. Go ahead. Let me just say this. I love Emmanuel Baptist Church because I don't have a lot of negative feedback. I may start someday tomorrow. I don't know. Or maybe there is negative feedback. It just never comes to me. Um, But I have pastor friends that get emails every Monday morning from people complaining about their servants or complaining about this or this or that. They have issues in their church. And um, let's just talk about... um, there's a lot of things our church has been through in the past few years that could have very easily caused a lot of division and, and a lot of issues. And um, I'm just thankful that God has preserved the church and that we've been, um, I, don't, I don't think I can stand up on a Sunday morning and be like Paul saying, you know, there's factions and there's fighting and there's quarreling and there's all this going on, and there's gossip. I don't see that unless I'm totally blind to reality. I don't see that. Now, does it mean that we're a perfect church? No. Does it mean we don't have problems? No. Does it mean that we need a lot of room for improvement? Yes. But I think overall, I'd say God has guarded us from this spirit of quarreling that a lot of my pastor friends experience in their churches. And either God is very gracious to us or... People just don't care enough to bring these issues up, and they're like, which is either sad either way. Um, I don't want to rock the boat, so I'm just not going to say anything. I'm just going to live in passive aggressive, you know, hoping something changes. Or you know, a lot of it depends on personality. I think if you have a lot of passive aggressive people in church, you may never know. But if you have a lot of vocal people in church, but I'm just thankful God has God has spared us at least at this moment, and at least really I think since I've been here, um, you know, I've read the church history of our church going all the way back to 1954 when the church was founded. And there were some periods in the 60s and 70s, like in the 70s. um, I think Emmanuel went through a pastor like every year or every two years because either one, somebody got, he was like, one was a drunk, one had adultery. There was a lot. Were you back? I don't know if you were back here, Larry, in those days, like before you came, but it kind of had a string in the 70s of some really bad times for the church. I 
I don't know if you guys know the story. I didn't know the story until Pastor John at First Baptist told me the story. But Emmanuel started kind of negatively with First Baptist. First Baptist was already here. And back during the oil boom in the mid-50s, a lot of Southerners, like from Oklahoma and Texas, came to Sterling, and they wanted to start a Southern Baptist church as opposed to the American Baptist church. And so some of these people, I guess, pulled people away from First Baptist to start Emmanuel. And there was some bad blood between Emmanuel and First Baptist. And, and, and when Pastor Rick was here, Rick Lewis, back in the 90s, um, he and John realized that there was some of this history and Rick didn't know about it, and this was before John came. But I don't know if you guys remember this, but I guess back in the 90s there was a reconciliation service between First Baptist and Emmanuel to bring, to, to heal those wounds way back in the 50s. Anybody remember that those, those, that time? That's been before. This is what John Roberts said he and Rick Lewis did. So I don't know if you guys remember that, maybe. But that was kind of cool. So let's look at section 3 here. God, he's going to encourage Christian leaders encourage the way of the cross among God's people. So let's just kind of review. The first section, Christian leaders are servants and good stewards, and there's an appropriate way to deal with conflict and and not to judge or unfairly gossip about leaders. Number two, leaders are going to suffer, and all Christians are going to suffer if you truly live according to the gospel. But then the third one he's saying is that he's going to encourage the way of the cross among God's people. So let's read this last section, 14 through 21. Paul changes his tone again. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? In verses 14 through 17, he's encouraging the believers. Now, he was kind of sarcastic before, right? I'm sarcastic. I'm kind of getting on you. But now he changes his tone, and he comes to them as a father. He's a loving pastor. He's a father figure. He's going to admonish them as children. The word admonish there means to warn, to reprove, with the intent of changing one's mind that leads to actual transformed behavior. Now, what Paul says here, you have a lot of guides in Christ. You've got a lot of positive influences, a lot of people that have poured into your life, but not many of you have fathers, spiritual fathers. Now, what is Paul talking about there? I think what Paul's saying here is this. He uses this father imagery to show that they had many men or women who had influenced them and taught them 
but they only had one father in the faith who actually planted the church and led many of them to faith in Christ. Paul could stand up and say, I came to Corinth when there was no church. And for 18 months, I poured my life into you. And most of you that are in this church are here because either I indirectly or part of my ministry led you to Christ. I'm your spiritual father. Now, Paul's not being arrogant there. What he's saying is, is that I came to, I love you as a father. Paul's like, I've given birth to you guys. Now, obviously God gives birth, but Paul's saying, I was instrumental in, in, in your coming to Christ. And in 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul uses another imagery. He says, you were, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you'd become very dear to us. One of the greatest things we can do as a Christian is to give birth to another Christian. Now, obviously, who gives birth to Christians? God, the Holy Spirit. But have you guys, have you, there's a, there's a really good little pamphlet by Dawson Trotman. You guys know who Dawson Trotman is? He's the founder of the Navigators. As a matter of fact, his son was a member of my church in Black Forest. Um, it's Ron Clement's father-in-law, Bruce Trotman. But anyway, there's this little book called Born to Reproduce. And basically his argument is, is that every Christian should at least lead another person to Christ and see them come to Christ and disciple them to do the same, giving birth to another Christian. And I would, I'm sad to say that most Christians have not had the privilege of giving birth to another Christian of being instrumental in leading them to faith in Christ, walking along them, discipling them, so that you're truly a spiritual father or mother to them. In the ancient world, it was a badge of honor for the son to imitate his father. In the same way, Paul wants the Corinthians to imitate his passion in light of the cross. Now, it's interesting. Paul says, imitate me. In verse 16, be imitators of me. Now, is Paul being arrogant there? I mean, obviously, we should be imitate Jesus, right? Be imi imitate Jesus, but he's saying be imitators of me in the sense that I am the one who kind of fathered you in the faith. You've seen my way of life. You've seen my passion for the gospel. Now, imitate that. And so what? Let me just ask, stop and ask a question. I think we've asked this in other classes in the past. How many of you have a spiritual father or mother that has mentored you? A few of you. How does that person in your, who is that person to you in your life? Are they very important to you? Okay. One of the, one of the, the things that has blessed me in my life is I've got, God has placed men in my life who have mentored me and discipled me and grown me. Now, I don't think I'd be the same person I was today if I didn't have these men in my life doing that. And so God has kind of put a burden on my heart to do that with, with other men. But I think every Christian, whether you're a pastor or whatever, you should be, and I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you, but pray about who in your life is God leading you to possibly invest in or, 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 or be, a, be a mentor to. And so Paul says here, I'm sending Timothy. I'm sending Timothy, my child, to remind you of my ways. 
Timothy was Paul's son in the faith. And Paul could send Timothy with full assurance to know that Timothy was going to be a good, a good representative. And, and Timothy's not there to teach doctrine. Paul had done that for 18 months. What Paul is sending Timothy to do is, look at it closely. Verse 17, That is why I sent Timothy to you, my beloved and faithful child of the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. He's not there to teach doctrine. He's there to remind them of how Paul lived out his doctrine. And Timothy would be a living, breathing example of that because Timothy was discipled by Paul. So here's a question. Is there a huge difference between knowledge and wisdom? Or another way to put it, is there a huge difference between doctrine and behavior? Can you know a lot of stuff and not actually live it out. And can you live a faithful Christian life and not know all of the ins and outs of theology? Yes. What Timothy's coming to do is to say, you know, Paul lived it out. It wasn't just that he... Paul didn't, wasn't just a talking windbag that his life didn't back it up. Paul taught you for 18 months and he lived it, and he discipled me, and I'm coming back to show you how Paul discipled me and to remind you of that so that you can see a real-life example of a spiritual father, and we've all just kind of been influenced by Paul. We need to live out the implications of our faith and not just have head knowledge. But then he's going to warn them, okay? There's still some issues here in verses 18 through 21. There's probably a small minority in the church. We don't know. They're saying things behind Paul's back. They're causing division. They're acting proudly as if Paul's not going to come back anytime soon. So pretty much we can do what we want because he's not coming back. Notice what he says. Verse 18, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but of their power. Now, They're thinking, we can cause division, we can do whatever we want, because after all, Paul's way off there in Ephesus or wherever he's at. He's not coming back anytime soon. While the cat's gone, the mice will play. So here's a question. Some, he says some, doesn't he say there? Verse 18, some are arrogant. We don't know how many they are, but there's a some, a group. So, oh, I don't, she didn't put this question on there. Question, how do you handle issues in the church when a person comes to you and says, everybody feels this way? It happens to me as a pastor a lot. When somebody has a complaint, they always come in, everybody feels this way. Well, can you define everybody? Well, I really don't want to tell you. I don't want to give names. But everybody, <laughs> me and my spouse, I mean, or, or me and my personality, I don't know. Everybody, usually people come in, they're like, everybody believes this. How do you respond to somebody when they, when they come to you like that and they're complaining about something? Whether it's, I mean, it can be anything. It doesn't necessarily even have to be in the church. It can be just somebody complaining about something and they come to you and, it's a, and maybe, maybe it's their issue, but they come and say, everybody's dealing with this. How do you address that? Because if not, what happens? Does gossip start? Does factions 
That's what's going on here. Paul's away. And so, you know, and I can just picture, I can just picture this. Because um, <laughs> I've been around church long enough. I bet you he sends Timothy in, okay? Timothy's the young guy, the young, you know, bright-eyed guy, and Paul's away. And probably this faction leader, you know, pulls Timothy aside. Timothy, we need to talk. We, we need to talk. Paul's not here, but I just need to let you know. There's everybody has a real big problem with Paul. I mean, everybody really does, has a problem with Paul. And let me just tell you about it. And then he begins to give Timothy an earful in hopes that Timothy will go back and tell Paul. And Paul really can't do anything about it because they're thinking, oh, he'll go back and tell Paul. But really, Paul's not going to do anything about it because he's not coming anytime soon. And so you've got those people in the church. And Paul says what? I'm going to trust in the sovereignty of God whether I come or not. What does he say? I'll come to you if the Lord wills. If it's in God's will, James tells us in James 4, 13, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And so Paul lives by that truth. I'm going to come to you. My plan is to come to you if the Lord wills. Now, the Lord may stop it. The Lord may orchestrate it. I'm desiring to come to you, but it's ultimately in the Lord's hands. But if Paul comes, what's he going to not be impressed by? Look what he says. Verse 19, if I come to you, I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Now, what does he mean by that? Their talk, not their power. He's saying, you guys can talk a good talk. You guys can give good talk. But if there's no demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit, if there's no demonstration of the gospel, I'm not going to be impressed. As a matter of fact, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but in power. What he's saying here is that you can talk a good game, you can say a lot of good things, and, and you can, you know, the proof's in the pudding. All oh, these great things are going on at our church. Look at all the great things that are happening. Look at the great, look, at, look, look what's happened since Paul's gone. Look at all these great things that are going on. And Paul's like, you can talk all you want, but when I come, I don't care about what you're saying. I want to see evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to see a demonstration of the gospel. Uh, talk is cheap. And then Paul ends up with a choice in verse 21. What does he say? What do you wish? There's two choices. Door number one. I can come guns blazing. I can come back and I can get in your face and we can, we can address this. Or door number two, I can come with love and a spirit of gentleness. It's up to you. In other words, what Paul says is if they don't repent and start dismantling these factions and start living in light of the cross, Paul may have to come with some strong rebukes, but hopefully they will see their sin and repent and then Paul can come in gentleness. So let's just look at the three main points of this entire chapter. Let's synthesize, summarize everything that we've looked at tonight in chapter 4. Um, the three main points. I've kind of put them up here. First point, Christian leaders have been called by God to lead the church as humble servants and faithful stewards of the gospel and deserve fair treatment as well as appropriate correction and evaluation. Okay? They're stewards, they're servants, 
they should not have unfair critique, but if it's appropriate, they need to have correction and evaluation. Number two, all Christians are called to live a life of suffering, sacrifice, and carrying our crosses as none of us has quote-unquote arrived, especially Christian leaders who are on the front lines of ministry. And then the last point, as Christians, we all need spiritual fathers and mothers in the faith who are worthy of imitating and who can admonish and encourage us to live in light of the cross. So that's the end of chapter 4. Then chapter 5, he's going to address incest. Just to let you know, next week that's where we're going. (laughs) So questions or observations. We're done really early tonight. Questions or comments or observations or things that you want clarified or discussed more fully? Do you have someone in your life right now that's worthy of imitating? Not that you worship them and not that you do everything they do, but that you look at their life and say, that's a godly person that really can be an example to me and I want to live. They're, they're kind of a model for me. Is there anything wrong with that? I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Paul here tells us to do that. As long as you don't worship them or put them up on an idol or a pedestal. How many of you have ever, I'm trying to generate some conversation because you guys are really not very talkative tonight. Um, how many of you have ever heard stories of spiritual abuse by pastors? Anne? Spiritual abuse. Um, I, I'll give you an example. At my former church, we had a family that started coming and um, their kids were in the youth group when I was a youth pastor. This was like 10, 12 years ago, 15, I don't know how long ago it was. But as I started meeting with them, they came out of a church where the pastor controlled everything in their lives. He told them what to watch on television. He controlled their checkbooks. He told them that if they, they, they confessed things to the pastor in confidence and he brought it out and said, you know, he from the pulpit would say things like, well, so-and-so confessed to me that they're struggling with lust. And so, I mean, that's spiritual abuse where you take the position of authority as a pastor and you hoard it over people in very abusive ways. Not like you're beating them, but like spiritually, you're, um, does that make sense, Deb, that you're, and so it's almost like a cult. Um, it was in Colorado Springs and it was, it was this type of mindset that I'm going to control your life. And the whole point of control is so that we have obedient people. Can you, can you control people and get obedience? Maybe for a little bit. They're either going to rebel or they're going to be very, very... This family was the most... Um, she was like the most skittish and defeated and timid, um, uns- insecure woman I'd ever seen. And now that they were coming to our church, she was like, as youth pastor, she was coming and asking all these permissions of things like, do I have permission to do this? Do I? And I'm like, why are you coming and asking me these things? You know, just live your life. But I realized that it was from her, her, mer- her 
experience at church was that she had to get permission from the pastor to do everything. And so when she started coming to our church, it was like this freedom she couldn't handle. And so she was very insecure. Um, I've seen other people totally rebel and go the, go the other direction and totally write off the church and, you know, have scars, you know, say, I don't want anything to do with it because of what, what happened. Um, yes, Brent. Well, I'm just, <laughs> I figured you would, Brent, but that's okay. Howard Hendricks uh, at a Promise Keepers once said this, and I really liked it. He said, everybody needs three people in their life. They need a, um, a Paul that they can look up to, that they can, uh, that has modeled for them how they need to be. They need a Barnabas in their life that can walk the same path that they are, basically in the same place spiritually. And they also need a Timothy that they can pour their mm-hmm. life into. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's one of the best models. Mm-hmm. That I've seen. That's the other good. thing I was going to say is, um, I've always thought that you do need spiritual fathers and mothers in the faith. But I think something that is missing in, in our society is spiritual um, couples. Mm-hmm. Basically, in this day and age of, of rampant uh, divorce mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. adultery and everything else, and that we need yes. couples that have are fairly stable. To be able to kind of model, but also kind of bring along others. I agree, and I, and I think when I say fathers and mothers, don't limit it to one person, but it could be a couple, sure. a spiritual couple that's come along and, and mentored you and how to live a godly marriage. Yeah, that's good. She told me about this exciting group, and, and, it, and it was called the Local Church. Have you heard of the Local Church? And they had one in Denver, and she said, I'll go to Denver. And I said, well, I went. And, and it was all these young, college-age mm-hmm. kind of people, and they were having a blast. They had Love Feast, which is another name for potluck. Yeah. And, but I was going to go to Spokane, and this guy had come in from Spokane named Max. I can't remember his last name. We got to chatting, and I said, are we going to Spokane? He said, why do you know? I mean, I'm going to sing along. I got money and I don't have any commitment. I'm out of here. I'm going, you know. And uh, he just kind of rolled his eyes. Well, I got out to the church in Spokane and it was incredibly legalistic. And there was pressure on what you should wear in the building and how you should, and the lingo, there was certain lingo that you were picked up, you know. And um, they had a, the pastors had a back door, and they would start the service. And if there were <laughs> some people there that weren't in step, they and I knew the couple, they started the service, put some people in charge. They went out the back door, drove 20 minutes away, ripped this couple, drove back to conclude the service. I mean, it was the power that wow. they, they welded was unbelievable. Wow. And he said he was a contemporary of Watchman. And he was the one who brought this local church concept. And essentially, he elevated the church into the Godhead. 
Mm. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit from the church. Mm -hmm. You can't separate the head from the body. Mm -hmm. And Christ is the head. And so, but he would deny it if we put it out like that. But essentially, that's what he was mm -hmm. promoting. Mm -hmm. And the confusion and the control, oh, yeah. even to where they would say who he could marry and not marry. Yeah, I, I, let me tell you guys a story. Um, there's a group, and I don't know if they're even around anymore. It's not the Church of Christ. It's called the International Church of Christ. It's not the denomination. It's called the International Church of Christ. They were big in the early 90s. Um, Dawn, my wife, um, she was a college student, was involved in a Baptist church, um, was reading a book out at Auraria campus when she went to um, in, in Denver, and this girl came up and started witnessing to her, and Dawn's like, oh, cool, another Christian. Why don't you come to my Bible study? Well, Dawn goes to this Bible study thinking it was just going to be like a one-on-one -on -one thing. Well, it was four girls ganged up on Dawn, and they started questioning her salvation, questioning her, her youth pastor, questioning her church, telling her she needed to get rebaptized, doing all this stuff. And then Dawn had to go back to her youth pastor for damage control, and she's like, he's like, you got to get out of that. It's a cult. And they prey on like young college students. Um, then when I was at UCCS, University of Colorado at Colorado Springs, the movement was big there. And there was these kids that I knew that they all lived in one big house and their leader controlled their checkbooks, controlled their dating and controlled everything. Well, we had a kid in our church that went off to University of Kansas and he got involved in the International Church of Christ at the University of Kansas. He denounced his parents. His dad was an elder in our church. He said that our church was heretical. He got rebaptized and basically got involved in this cult and cut all ties with his parents because of this control thing. And so it's very, it's out there. I mean, you think about like the Moonies and other things. There, there's always a temptation for those in leadership to abuse their positions of authority. And the sad thing is a lot of times people will let them. Have you seen the propaganda films of World War II with Hitler? How did he get away with it? Well, if you've got enough charisma and you have people that are willing to follow, that's why it concerns me in this generation that we've kind of, there's so much apathy that I'm almost wondering if somebody stepped in and was a totalitarian leader, there's so much apathy, people would be like, oh, I don't care. And the next thing you know, it's, you know, we're back to communism. I'm not trying to be like alarmist here, but I'm just saying if there's so much apathy that people don't care, they're, they're letting the door open. So there's a balance between being over-judgmental of leaders and gossiping, and there's the other balance of not holding them accountable at all or evaluating and just letting them do whatever they want. I think there's a happy balance there. Not the one across the street, but in the, Bible. The, street, <laughs> in the Bible. In the Bible. Yeah. Where, where Paul preached to them, and, and they were enthused about it, but they went back and they checked mm -hmm. what he said. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's kind of the same thing we talked about here. People don't think, and if they don't understand their own beliefs, they'll buy anything from mm -hmm. um, And that's where it's scary. Mm -hmm. But if you think that you're going to hold, and if you have that relationship with Christ and you are going with him, there's going to be that balance. Mm -hmm. I think in our country right now, we don't hold that tension. Mm -hmm. And don't take what I've said tonight for as gospel truth, and don't ever take what I say. Go home and 
search it and evaluate it and line it up with the scriptures, and, and I could be wrong. There's, I, I'm, I'm here to admit I could be the first one to be wrong. I don't have airtight theology where I've got it all figured out. Um, I'll get to heaven and figure out how wrong I was on certain things. Uh, other times I'll be go there and be like, okay, I think I got pretty close. But, I mean, none of us have arrived in that, and so I think we need to just be diligent to, on our own, read the scriptures and, and come to the conclusions that God has for us. So, well, let me pray for us, and then um, I'll let you guys go. Father, thank you. Father, I just want to, first of all, thank you for um, our church. Lord, it's, it's a loving church that loves and supports Dawn and me and our family. Lord, we're so blessed to have a, a, just a church family that um, supports us and encourages us. And Lord, just the freedom I have here to be able to preach and to teach and to lead, Lord. And, and there's so many things that I don't do well, and there's so many ways that I fall short. And I, I thank you for the grace that this congregation shows me. Lord, I pray that we would all be willing to suffer for the gospel in, in whatever way you, you ordain that to happen, Lord. Not that we want it to happen, but we know that um, we're to take up our cross daily and follow you. And Lord, we want to be encouraged by those in our lives that can mentor us. Lord, help us to either find a mentor or be a mentor, Lord, whatever, whatever that looks like. And so just help us to be the people you've called us to be for the glory of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.